Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible is, uh, sorry to say it's already open, but it's getting there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses uh, 4 through 7, our text this morning. Sort of turning the page. For the last five Sundays, we've studied on the subject of heaven. And I've thoroughly enjoyed the study of, of heaven and looking forward to heaven very much and hope you are as well. But if there's one thing I know about heaven, and I've said it so many times, you're going to roll your eyes. There is a heaven. This ain't it. We have to live, don't we? The, the Lord does have for us one day a uh, home in heaven, glorified bodies. But until then, he's given us a purpose for this life. And that is to be salt and light in this world, to tell truth and to preserve this wicked world from being any more wicked than it already is. And, of course, to uh, primarily fulfill the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples of all the nations. Um, this morning, we start a series on church membership. And the title of today's message is The Eternal Obligation of Christian Love. A few years ago, I, back during the height of COVID, recorded a series of 11 messages, really lessons, on systematic theology, different phases and various areas of theology in the Bible. And the last two, I saved for last sort of as an experiment. Uh, the first one was eschatology which is the study of last things, which we've been studying about the last five weeks when we talk about heaven. And the final one was ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And my experiment proved a theory of mine, and that is people are much more interested in eschatology than they are ecclesiology. And here's how I know. Three times as many of you watched and listened to and streamed and downloaded the series on eschatology than you did on ecclesiology. So now I've got to get you back. No, not really. We're going to study ecclesiology for the next uh, few weeks. It's, an, it's important. It's every bit as important as eschatology. Um, the truth is we need both eschatology and ecclesiology. Um, but as much as I enjoyed studying and preaching about heaven the last five weeks, I remind myself um, we have to live. Just as marriage in this life is an illustration to the world of the love of Christ for his church, that one day that bride of Christ is going to come down, made ready for his own. The local church is to reflect the nature and the heart of God. So when there is disorder and dysfunction and disunity and brokenness in Christian marriages, it confuses the world around us about Christ's love for the church. And when there's disorder and dysfunction and brokenness in the local church, it has the same effect. The lost and dying world is looking at us, whether you want to believe that or not. Jesus says they will know you by your love one for another. And because of that, our pastors meet often to talk about and pray through how this church, First Baptist Keller, can best reflect who God is and how we can strengthen our understanding of local church membership. In 2019, just three years ago, those conversations led us to renew our emphasis on our church covenant. Our church has two important documents that help us function and stay between the lines, as it were. The first is our doctrinal statement which is exactly what it sounds like. It's what we believe. 
what we believe about different areas of theology. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message of 2000. The other document is much more personal and local. It is our church covenant. It's what we give to people who are thinking about joining our church to tell them what they can and should expect from First Baptist Keller and what our church expects from them when and if they become a member. Now, Lord willing, for the next five weeks, our pastors are going to preach on five of the ten articles of our church covenant and later the other five. Now, of course, our covenant and our doctrinal statement are based on Scripture. So we're going to be preaching verses of the Bible. So to that end, let's open our copies of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, right away, you will recognize 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter of the New Testament. It's often read at weddings, and rightly so. It reminds the bride and groom and all the witnesses of what real love looks like. But the context of 1 Corinthians 15 is not marriage at all. 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter to a dysfunctional church, the church at Corinth. And when I say the church at Corinth was dysfunctional, brother, I mean dysfunctional. They had factionalism. They were dividing into groups into the church saying, I'm following this pastor. This one was saying, I'm following that pastor. Worse, there was gross immorality going undisciplined in the church. There was a man, if you can believe it, who was sleeping with his stepmother and everyone knew it. No one would say anything about it. In fact, they congratulated themselves on how forgiving they were that they could overlook such a thing. Overall, there was just a general failure to thrive spiritually. They were not growing. They were not making progress in sanctification. Well, it might surprise you to know that it didn't start out that way. Just as most people who have a dysfunctional marriage don't start out to have a dysfunctional marriage, it just happens. In fact, the church at Corinth got off to a great start. It was founded by none other than the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey. Uh, we know that it had sound doctrine. God gave numeric growth right away, and God protected them overall from persecution. Listen, in fact, to how Dr. Luke describes the founding of the church at Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul stayed in Corinth longer than in nearly any place he stayed. And he firmly established, so he thought, these churches. And when he got them to a place of health, he moved on to the next place to plant churches. But after Paul left to plant other churches, word came to him that the church at Corinth was beginning to manifest problems. And as we study the whole of the book of 1 Corinthians, the root of the problem was not bad or unclear doctrinal statements. Paul had established them himself doctrinally. The root problem was on the covenantal side, specifically the fact that they were not loving one another as they should. Now, as I interact with members of this church and non-members of our church in the community alike, I am blessed to hear over and again how our people love one another. That's the reputation that you have in the community. Now, we'd all be quick to admit we don't love each other perfectly. We always have room for improvement, but overall, there is a consistent reputation in the community that I hear that First Baptist Keller loves one another. And I don't know about you, I pray that will always be the case. But if it is to be the case, we have to remind ourselves over and again to love. 
That's what this message is. In fact, that's what this entire series of messages is. That's what the church covenant is, is a reminder of what you already know. The Apostle Peter, near the end of his life, wrote a letter to Christians, and he said, I have determined to remind you of what you already know. Now, I've been your pastor here a long time, and sometimes I wonder, do I have anything left to say? And then I remember, I've got to remind you what you already know. And I include myself in that as well, because we forget. And so let's be reminded of our duty to love one another from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Paul writes, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Now, based on this passage and many others in the Bible. Listen now to our church's article on love from our church covenant. It says, quote, we first love God with all our hearts and we love our neighbors as ourselves by meeting others' needs, being slow to anger, quick to forgive, and serving others sacrificially and with kindness, end quote. When you joined this church, that's what you agreed to do to love others that way. In other words, we covenanted together to seek to treat one another the same way Christ treats us. Now, the title of the message, as I said, is the eternal obligation of Christian love. I call it an eternal obligation because of what verse 8 says, that love never ends, never fails. And it's an obligation because an obligation is something you owe. The previous generation called debt obligations. Paul says this about our debts, Romans 13, 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. And the ten articles of our church covenant here are based on that obligation to love one another. Now I told you that people tend to enjoy eschatology more than ecclesiology, and I have a theory of why that is. I think it's because eschatology is based on a study of what we will receive in the future. Home in heaven, glorified bodies, Freedom from sin, pain, and death. And those are all wonderful things to dwell upon. But ecclesiology is based on what we owe to other people. Now, I don't know about you, when you look at your bank statement, I'd rather look at what I have than what I owe, don't you? In other words, we have a responsibility to love one another as Christ has loved the church. When Paul was describing the roles in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he said, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for her. That is, he laid down his life for her. That's agape kind of love. But unfortunately, you and I live in a culture that seems to be allergic to responsibility. Obligation. I mentioned last week that in history, since records have been kept in this country, marriage is at an all-time low. What I mean by that, for every 1,000 Americans, there are fewer weddings happening than any time in American history. That's a frightening thing to talk about. It's true not only in relationships, but even in careers. My brother managed people for many years for a large company down in Houston. and He's told me how the interview process has changed in the 25 years since he's been hiring people. He said when he first started, a potential employee would come in and want to know what he could do to help the company. What do I need to do to advance in the company? 
How many hours are you expecting me to, to put in? He says, now when he interviews a young person, their first question almost always is, when's vacation start? And I think it's just an indication that there are, our culture now is focused more on what we get than what we give. And unfortunately, it's infected the evangelical church writ large. There is a proliferation of people calling themselves Christians who attend various churches, plural, but they never settle down anywhere. They, they never make a commitment to join any church because they view church the same way they view their restaurants. It's a consumer service to them. And if they find a place that serves their interest and their taste better, they have no compulsions about going elsewhere. They certainly don't have the idea that they owe anything to anyone. Well, the Bible speaks of great blessings in the Christian walk. The book of Ephesians, the first half especially, talks about all the incredible blessings that are ours through our relationship with Christ Jesus, but it also talks about responsibility. The first and foremost responsibility that every Christian has to every other Christian is love. Now, I grew up in the 1980s. My friend, and many of yours, is Dr. David Toledo, who's now a professor out in California. David and I used to live together when we were single guys in seminary, and he has a theory that whatever music a person listened to between the ages of 13 and 24 will be the music you listen to the rest of your life. And I think he may be on to something because I have absolutely no knowledge or interest in today's popular music. I couldn't pick out the celebrities out of a lineup but to my shame, I tell you, I know nearly every word to every song ever written between 1984 and 1995. <laughs> and sometimes my four children have to suffer under my nostalgia. And the song they have come to despise the most because of its repetition is a 1980s anthem called I Want to Know What Love Is. You're my age. Well, I hope you want to know what love is from the context of the Bible. Here's a hint. You will not find out what love is by watching YouTube videos of 1980s bands with your kids. <laughs> you will find it in the Bible, specifically in our text today, 1 Corinthians 13. So first, let's define what we mean by love, and then we'll talk about what love is, and then what love is not. Obviously, we're talking about a different kind of love, than we hear about around us. This is a Greek word, as you know, agape, love. There are numerous Greek words that are translated to the English as love. There's eros, which is romantic love between a man and a woman. That's the kind of love most 80s songs are written about. There's phileo, brotherly love between friends. Uh, there's family love. And then there's agape, God's kind of love. And God's kind of love is fundamentally different than all the other kinds of love because it's based on grace and not merit. What most people call love is you do something for me or if you're beautiful enough or handsome enough or wealthy enough, I will love you. God didn't look down from heaven and see all of us sinners and say, I just could eat them up. They're so wonderful. Can't keep my hands off them. No, he chose to love us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in the height of rebellion, he loved us. Not on our best day, on our worst day. That's a kind of love that is selfless. 
doesn't think about self. It thinks about the object of his love. It's sacrificial. He lays down his life for the object of his love, which is what Christ did on the cross. And it's an active kind of love. It's love in action. In fact, when the Bible describes God in an economy of words, it says God is what? Love. That's a verb, is. He is taking initiative and he's taking action. He's choosing to love us despite ourselves. That's agape. And that's the kind of love that he expects his children to have towards one another. And that's not natural. What we are born with is desire to love that which loves us first. We, we are designed to reciprocate. We are designed to, to love that which has something to offer us. And yet he says that's not agape love. So first let's uh, look at the most simple outline in the world. First what love is not and then what love is based on these descriptive words that Paul uses in these four verses. First what love is not. He says love is not envious. An envious Christian begrudges God's blessings upon other Christians. That is God sends good gifts to all of his children, but we think we didn't get our share. Or we're mad that they got something we didn't. That's envy and it's a sin. Sometimes it manifests itself in different ways. Sometimes with other spiritual gifts. That person's a, a good teacher. I'm not. I don't like them. Sometimes it manifests itself in ministry opportunities. That person is the chairman of the committee. I want to be the chairman of. I'm not going to participate. Often it manifests itself in very financial ways. That person got a promotion and I didn't. I'm smarter than they are. I work harder than they, are, they do. Why does God give me that? And it leads to envy, which leads to bitterness, and it ought not to be. In fact, the Bible says there's a prescription, so that won't happen. Here it is. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. So when one of your brothers and sisters gets a promotion or has a baby, don't be envious. Rejoice with them. They're your brother and sister. You get to participate in that blessing. And when they go through hard times, they're diagnosed with an illness, their children rebel, come alongside them and love on them. Weep alongside with them. Don't be envious. And then related to that, he says, don't be boastful. True love's not boastful. That is when we are the ones who are the beneficiaries of God's blessings, we don't scoreboard other people. Look at me. I must be particularly good for God to bless me like this. No, we recognize humbly that all of God's blessings are based on his grace, not our merit. Because if we don't, we'll find ourselves becoming arrogant, which is the third thing love is not. Love's not arrogant. By the way, I think it's obvious three words into this description that some of the members of Corinth must have had some of these things in their life. Paul's just not drawing these words out of the air. He's thinking about individuals, I think. I think we're on sound ground with that based on 1 Corinthians 4, which says, as Paul speaking to the church at Corinth about their factionalism, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and each man's praise will come to him from God. Remember, some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm a Paul follower, some of them, I'm a Apollos follower, some of them, I'm a Peter follower. Who's the best preacher? People ask me that all the time. Who's the best preacher? Who's the best pastor in the country, Brother Keith? 
And you know what I say every time? It's too early to tell. <laughs> it is. I have my opinions, and I have people that I'm more attracted to. They're, they're speaking and teaching. But God knows their hearts, and there's coming a day when all that's going to be revealed, and I think we're all going to be shocked at who the people who have the most heavenly rewards are. So why even bother trying to rank people? Because it leads to arrogance and pride. Verse 6 says, Now these things, brothers, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become, what? Arrogant in behalf of one another against the other. For who regards you as superior? Now here I think it's one of the most important questions Paul poses, and we ought to pose it to the man in the mirror every morning. What do you have that you did not receive? Now think about the blessings in your life. Monetary blessings, family and relational blessings, church blessings. What do you have in your life that God did not give to you? Nothing. And if we don't have anything that God didn't give us freely... What can we boast about? <laughs> Same answer, nothing. Which is how we have to come to Christ to begin with. That's why Paul says salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. Paul says if you're going to boast in anything, boast only in the cross. So Christian love is not envious, boastful, arrogant. Fourthly, it is not rude. Poor behavior based on an attitude of arrogance. That's what rudeness is. It's a lack of concern for the welfare of others because of an attitude of superiority. Paul pointed out what was happening in the church at Corinth is that the wealthy were coming together to take the Lord's Supper, having a big feast and cleaning it up before the poor people arrived because they thought they were superior to them. And the Lord's Supper is the place where everyone ought to fellowship and commune together, right? Paul rebuked them for that. They were behaving rudely because they thought themselves superior. That guy that cuts you off in traffic makes you wait at the red light when he goes on through. Do you know why he's doing that? Because he's rude. He's thinking that he's superior to you. His time is more important than yours. That's why it makes you so mad. Christian love is not rude, neither is it selfish. That is, it's not motivated by self-interest. Rather, than what is good for the whole. I was at a funeral the other day and I read into uh, the daughters of a dear lady in our church who's now with the Lord, Mrs. Violet Smith. And that name will not mean most, much to most of you, but to me and many others it does. For many years, Miss Violet was a, a matriarch in this church. She was the records keeper and the historian of this church. And a dear saint of God taught the oldest women's widows class for many years. And Miss Violet was always voted on every committee because everyone respected her so much. And, and her impulse laid into her 80s. Anytime the church needed to do something to advance God's kingdom, she was always the first one to say, we're going to do this because it's good for the whole church. Sometimes she would say that knowing that what we were going to do was not good for her or her peer group necessarily or what they all wanted to do, but because it was good for the church. May Violet Smith's tribe increase, amen? That we do what we do because it's good for the whole. We're not selfish. And then here's another one. True Christian love is not grumpy. You won't find that in the King James Version. But the meaning is there. It says it's not provoked. 
which means irritable. We all know irritable people who are waiting for a reason to complain. They're looking for a reason, like the Hebrew children were for Moses and Aaron. They, they were wanting to murmur, to complain about their leadership. Don't be a grumpy Christian. Because grumpiness and selfishness leads to bitterness. And when we're bitter, we become vengeful. A vengeful person does not, is a person who takes into account perceived wrongs. Jack Gatewood, many of you know, retired here last year, but uh, 20 years ago, he led the premarital counseling for Melissa and me when we were about to get married. And I used stuff he taught us in that all the time. I remember so much of it. And one of the things he taught us was not to keep an invisible notebook. I said, Jack, what's an invisible notebook? He says, well, when, when you feel like Melissa has wronged you in some way, you might not say anything, but you take out your invisible notebook and mark it down. She does the same for you, and after two or three years, you got four or five pages of grievances. And then when you're in the middle of a disagreement and you think you're losing the fight, you bring out the invisible notebook for ammunition. And you begin to read all the things you've done to one another, and it turns into a huge mess. She said, don't do that. That's what Paul said, Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with your grievances one by one. Else you'll become vengeful. You'll, you'll take matters into your own hand, and you'll be bitter. I think the saddest state of a human can be is bitter. So that's what love is not. So what is love? What's the opposite of that? And he uses words like love is patient. That it endures mistreatment from others over a long period of time before it strikes back. God's like that. He's slow to anger, the Bible says. He's long-suffering, patient. Love is kind. Now we tend to think of kindness in a soft voice or a gentle look, but really it's more than that here in the Greek. To be kind meant to furnish what is needed. That is, if you see a need and you have the ability of meeting it, you do it without drawing attention to yourself or complaining about it. That is, you have the needs of others on your heart and mind as much as your own. It's truth-loving. It rejoices in the truth, Paul says. And of course, real truth is found in God's Word. God's Word is truth. And I think a church ceases to be a church when it ceases to love the truth in God's word. I've seen this firsthand. I had a friend who was a pastor in another state, and he had a tough time in this church. The people were hard to lead. He struggled. But the Lord put on his heart a particular ministry to start in the church, and it was advancing and doing very well. The Lord was adding to the church. But his deacons didn't like it because some of the people that were joining were not people they wanted there. And so they called a secret meeting and decided they didn't want to do this ministry anymore. And then they called the pastor in to tell him. He got wind of it. And he brought in his Bible and he laid it down on the table in front of the deacons and said, Men, I will agree to do anything y'all want to do so long as the Bible says we should do it. And I've never heard of anything since or before, but here's what those deacons did. They voted not to obey what the Bible says. Now, many of us fail to obey what the Bible says, but we're well-meaning. They voted not to obey what the Bible says. He called me that afternoon after the meeting and said, what would you do? I said, I would resign tomorrow because that's no longer a church. That group of people meeting together may call themselves a church, but if they vote to disobey God's word, they're not a church. And he left, and the Lord has blessed his ministry multiplied times over since then. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. Love love, uh, loves the truth. Love is strong. It bears all things. It's not fragile. Don't you hate to be around couples who are always afraid they're going to offend each other because they're afraid the other one's going to leave. I do anything to offend them. They're going to leave me. So I've got to walk on eggshells. That's not love. Love is strong. It bears all things. It is hopeful. It hopes all things. That is, it does not write off other believers as lost causes just because they offend me. Love is persistent. We pursue and we hang on to relationships with other Christians tenaciously because we know God holds on to us that way. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And we know we have an eternal obligation to love. But we live in a disposable world. We just throw away and start over, don't we? We have disposable dishes. I wear disposable contact lenses. We have disposable marriages. We'll just try again later. And unfortunately, it seems that we're moving towards having disposable churches. That is, if I don't get my way, if everything doesn't suit me perfectly, I'll just take my love elsewhere. Here's the application. We saw it here during COVID. If the pastors don't make all the decisions just like we think they should, we'll withhold our love. We'll withhold our fellowship. We won't come. But it doesn't take a plague to bring out that in the local church sometimes. Here's what all of us have heard from time to time if we've been Baptist very long. If they don't start playing the songs I like best, I'll not participate. If I don't get to lead that ministry, I'm not going to be a part of it. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. And even though we flatter ourselves that we have a good reputation, I think we do in the community of loving one another, we can always do better. It's what I say about the Apostle Paul. He wasn't perfect, but he sure wanted to be. People say to me all the time, and I hear myself saying, well, I'm not perfect. And I wait. Are they going to put a comma or a period on that sentence? What I long to hear people say, and what I want myself to say is, I'm not perfect, comma, but I sure want to be. I want to be better. I want to love better. I want to do better. I want to think better, even though I'm not what I want to be. Praise the Lord, not what I used to be. Making progress in sanctification. That was the root problem that broke Paul's heart. Yes, they had factionalism and sexual immorality. They just weren't growing. They weren't growing. And it was because they hadn't learned to love. They had great theology. They didn't love each other. Now, what can we do to guard ourselves from that happening to us? Well, number one, we must always have a high view of God's word. That we believe God's promises rather than how we feel. Facts over feelings, in other words. We've got to be prayerful. We've got to pray for other people and we've got to pray for ourselves. That we won't take our own vengeance. That we won't become bitter. That we'll be long-suffering with one another. And a good test of this and how to pray is if you find yourself becoming bitter or angry or jealous or envious, all those things that love is not, ask yourself a question. Is what is disappointing me in this other Christian a moral or ethical or sin problem or is it just my personal preference? And if it's just a personal preference, we don't have the right, do we, to withhold our fellowship from them. 
And, and I think overall it comes down to a right and biblical understanding of what church membership is. Church membership is not joining a civic organization or a club or any of those worthy organizations some of you belong to. Becoming a member of a church is voluntarily submitting yourself to the God-ordained, blood-purchased body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're obligating yourself to certain things. You're saying, I'm going to exercise my unique spiritual gift for God's glory, for the benefit of those folk in the context of the local church. And I'm expecting them to do the same for me. And when they don't do it, and when I don't do it, I expect them to call me out on it. And it's not going to make me mad. It's not going to make me withhold my fellowship. It's going to make me love them even more. And so as we think through that, the pastors and I have prayed through and talked about how can we raise the level of understanding of church membership. Well, a few years ago, we, we laid out a process that when a person is interested in joining the church, we try to talk to each one of them individually. They began the process by coming forward at the end of one of the services and presenting themselves as a candidate for ministry. Then we asked one of our trained counselors to hear their personal testimony of faith in Christ. Then we're asked, asking them to go to a two-hour orientation class where we talk about the church covenant, the doctrinal statement, and then at the end of that process, if they complete it, their name is brought forward at a business meeting to be voted on and affirmed as a member of the church. And though we've taken strides, we still think we have more to do. And so for the next few weeks, our pastor is going to lay out our plan for raising awareness and understanding about what it means to be a member of First Baptist Church of Calvary. And I hope you'll pray for us because our intent is not to be legalistic, it's to be loving. To help us all understand how important and vital our church family is and what the Bible says a church is and what a church is not. Let's pray that the Lord be glorified over the next few weeks together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we gather around your word today, we are reminded that uh, you have not left us in the dark. You instituted marriage, human government, and the church. And in every case, you give us prescriptions of our roles and how it's to function. And Lord, when we follow our roles and when we follow your word, all three of those institutions can be a blessing. In fact, they can be incredibly beautiful to behold. But Lord, when we fail to obey your word, um, those three things can become a heartbreak. They can become incredibly painful. And, and even worse, they can cause a lost and dying world to misunderstand you and your love and the gospel. Father, the last thing we want to do is to harm your good name. So Father, I pray that as we think about our own church here, your church at First Baptist Keller, Father, that all of us who are members would, at the end of this series, rededicate ourselves to serving as you call us to serve, loving as you call us to love, believing as you call us to believe. Father, I pray if there's Christians here considering joining our church, Father, that they would have the clearest picture possible of what church membership is and, and what your expectations of them are and what they can expect from their brothers and sisters. And then above all, Lord, help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. It's fine to have a clear doctrinal statement, and we do. It's wonderful to have a clearly articulated covenant, and we do. But Lord, Church at Corinth had those things, apparently. They had a lot of advantages we don't. They had the Apostle Paul who trained them for 18 months. But Lord, they lost their first love, just as the church at Laodicea did. Lord, may that never happen here. Help us to be 
diligent and vigilant, guarding our fellowship, Father, because your good name is at stake. And our ambition is to glorify you through all things. Soli Deo Gloria. All things to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.